generally speaking, uh, most laws have some semblance of logic to them, don't they? But then again, some don't. So just for kicks and giggles, here, here are a few uh, antiquated laws of Ohio that are still active. So in the state of Ohio, it is illegal to get a fish drunk. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, it, is, it is illegal to catch mice in the city of Cleveland without a hunting license. Yeah, yeah. Uh, it is illegal for five or more women to live in the same house. I didn't make the laws. I'm just quoting them. Uh, and, and, and this one is, is particularly relevant to some of you. It is illegal to lead a cow down Lake Road in Bay Village. Yeah. Now, okay, now we, we hear those laws and, and we're doing what you're doing. We laugh it off. We think it's funny and we dismiss them because they are from a bygone era and thus they have no bearing on our lives. And we can feel that way whenever we read chunks of the Old Testament, right? There are some bizarre commands in there uh, that made sense when they were given, but now not so much. And we can be thankful that we don't have to worry about keeping them anymore because Jesus did that on our behalf. He lived the life that we should have lived and died the death we should have died. And so thankfully, we don't have to worry about these laws and rules anymore. We are free. Or are we? So tonight, we're going to kick off our summer series. We're going to be looking at how Jesus instructs citizens of his kingdom to live. Uh, we're going to spend a lot of time in Matthew 5 through 7, which contains what's known as the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, and I want us to start by looking at what, uh, what our relationship to the law is supposed to be. And to do that, we're going to turn to Matthew chapter 5, verses 17 through 20, and I want us to see how Jesus related to the law, why we don't, and how that how things change. Okay? So how does Jesus relate to the law? Well, he tells us pretty clearly, uh, starting in verse 17. He says, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot, will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Jesus makes it very clear how he relates to the law, that he didn't come, he didn't show up to abolish it, to get rid of it, he came to fulfill it. And there's really two ways that you can understand this term fulfillment. You can think of the law kind of like a glass that needs to be filled up. Uh, you know, you and I, we pour our good works into the glass of the law, and, and, and maybe we fill it up a little bit, or maybe you're really good, and you fill it up like halfway. But no one is able to completely fulfill or completely fill up the law. And so Jesus came to live the life that we should have lived. He fills the glass completely full. And since the law has been fulfilled, the glass has been filled to the brim by Jesus, there's nothing left for us to do anymore. We just reap the benefits. 
And there is some truth in that, but that's not the point that Jesus is trying to get across here. Uh, To fulfill something in this context means to bring it to its intended place or goal. So, like, have you ever bought anything from Amazon? Yeah, okay, so sometimes you buy things from Amazon, but sometimes you buy things on Amazon that's from a third-party seller. And you'll see this little line, sold to you by, fill in the blank, fulfilled by Amazon. What do they mean by that? Uh, it, it, it means that, that, uh, that the seller wants to, to get you something, a book, a DVD, whatever, and that it's Amazon's responsibility to deliver it where it's supposed to be. And what that means for our text is that the law was always trying to take us somewhere. It was trying to deliver something in our lives. So here was the goal of the law. It it was really trying to bring about two things that Jesus helpfully summarizes for us in Matthew 22, 37 through 40. Uh, Someone asked Jesus uh, to summarize the law, and this is what he says. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend or sum up all the law and the prophets. See, the goal of the law was not to give us a checklist. The goal of the law was to shape us into the people of God, those who love him and love others. And so what we see Jesus doing is not removing the law from our lives. We actually see him intensifying it. Uh, If we were to read on after our text, six times Jesus will say, you have heard it said, but I say to you. And each time he is taking the law and he's fulfilling it. He's intensifying it so that it gets us where we're supposed to go. So for example, he says to them, you know, the command to not murder, that's good, but it doesn't completely fulfill the law. It doesn't take you where it was supposed to go. And so if you are going to be God's people, you don't even get angry. Or he's saying, you know, it's a good thing that you have not committed adultery, but the intended transformation into citizens of my kingdom goes much deeper than that. And so don't even look lustfully at another person. Do you hear what he's doing? He's taking the law and he's raising the bar, not to show us that we're, we're all sinners, though that is true. The law was given so that God's people might show the world through their actions what he's like. Which means that there are standards and expectations that you and I are supposed to meet as Christians. As a citizen of his kingdom, there are things that you and I are supposed to do. And my guess is that there are a few of you uh, sitting here that are starting to get a little uncomfortable. Uh, There's a little alarm bell that's going off in your head that's saying, he's saying we're saved by works. Quick, someone stone him. But I'm not saying that. Um, I am in no way saying that you and I are made acceptable before God because of our actions. Each Each one of us has fallen short. We are treasonous sinners deserving of death. And Scripture makes it very clear in places like Ephesians 2, 8, and 9, that by grace, you and I are saved. It's, it's not of our own doing. It's the gift of God. It's not a result of works so that no one may boast. And so sin, hell, etc., all that, that's what we're saved from, apart from anything that we have done or could do. 
But what Jesus is talking about here, what I'm trying to, to talk about, is what we are saved to. Paul continues on in Ephesians 2.10, we are God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance, beforehand that we might walk in them. See, there, there is an, ex, an expectation on you as a member of God's kingdom. There is a, a way that you and I are supposed to live. And that's what the Sermon on the Mount is all about. It's not trying to hit you over the head with your sinfulness, though it can't have that effect. It's really trying to explain practically how you and I fulfill the law, how you and I live the way that we were created to live, loving God and loving others. And let's be honest, we resist that so hard, don't we? We think to ourselves, this is not what I signed up for. I signed up for grace and forgiveness and heaven, not someone dictating how I live my life. And that line of thinking shows us what our root problem is with God's law. See, each of us relates to God's law, to his word, in one of two ways. Uh, we either see it as a shackle, a, a, an unobtainable burden that we need to be freed from. Or we view it as a, a tool to gain God's acceptance and leverage it for our benefit. That, that if, if, if I score high enough marks in God's moral checklist, then I am more likely to get whatever it is I want from God. And what's interesting is that both of those things come from the same root belief, that God really doesn't deserve to call the shots. That God doesn't actually know what he's doing. Oh, oh sure, we, we are, we're all here for being saved from eternal damnation and, and God loving on us. That sounds wonderful. But these expectations, these commands and restrictions, we actually don't think God knows best when it comes down to it, which is why we don't do them. That's why we revolt against these instructions we find in Scripture, because deep down we believe that, that God is wrong and that we know better. And this has always been uh, our response to God's law. Take, take the Israelites, for example, the, the first recipients of God's law. God had given them the law to guide them to live as his people, but they, they continued to rebel to the point that when Moses is, is getting ready to die, at the end of Deuteronomy, he tells them, you are a lost cause. I'm going to die, and you all are going to keep rebelling. That's just, it's just what's going to happen. And so he, he tells them that, that, that they actually uh, need a more in-depth treatment program. This is what he tells them in Deuteronomy 36. The Lord your God needs to come and circumcise your heart and the heart of your offspring so that you will love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul that you may live. And that is a strange treatment plan to us. But it gets a little clearer as we move along the biblical story. Uh, when we get to the prophet Ezekiel, in Ezekiel 36, 26 through 27, he says, I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you, and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh, and I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. And this is what Jesus does. Jesus comes to earth and he fulfills the law. He, he loves, God, loves God and others completely and perfectly. He shows the world what God is like. And through his compassion, his acts of mercy, and ultimately his death on the cross, 
he reveals God's great love for us and that he always acts with our best in mind. And then something amazing happens, right? He, he had promised that after he rose from the dead, after he returned to the Father, he would send his spirit. And his spirit would indwell us, would live in us and enable us because we have experienced God's love to truly show the world what God is like. The Spirit transforms our hearts. It empowers us to fulfill the law, to love God and others as we ought. And so here's the point. This summer, we're going to explore what it looks like to be people of Jesus' kingdom. But we'll never receive what the Sermon on the Mount offers us. We'll never receive it as we should if we first don't understand how God's word relates to us. It's not a measuring stick to see if we're good enough. Rather, it's the thing that guides us to what, in Jesus, we're all called to be. Those who love God and those who love others.